you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. For more than four decades, that's a long time, today's guest has been recognized for his clean, family-friendly comedy and for finding humor in everyday family life. The ups and downs of marriage, the challenges, and there are many of raising children, the bliss of the empty nest the joys of being a grandparent, and so much more. He's known for coining the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Well, Jeff Allen believes that his story, not just his comedy, his story, though not without his own challenges and baggage and brokenness and mistakes, can provide hope and encouragement to those who feel frustrated or empty or unfulfilled in their lives. Today, Jeff's going to join me. He's going to speak candidly, and I mean vulnerably, about some of his darkest moments, his journey to hitting rock bottom, and how he overcame addiction and despair to find joy in life, and the strengthening of his relationship, not only with his wife, which was a lovely story, but also with God. It's a powerful story. During this interview, you are going to laugh a little bit. You're possibly going to cry a little bit. You might even get angry a little bit at some of the things that Jeff does, some of the things he says. However, you most certainly will be reminded that no matter how dark and difficult life may seem, there is always hope that the best of our days remain ahead of us. So my friends, get ready for a wild, painful, beautiful, redemptive ride with me. And now our new friend, his name is Jeff Allen. Jeff, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I apologize. I'm on the side of an interstate in a rest area uh, cruising to the next job. Well, since you said it, we'll go there first, man. Two days ago, you celebrated a birthday. I think it was your 67th birthday. You're still doing the work. So when people meet you at a truck stop, which is an unusual place to meet someone, but if they meet <laughs> someone at a truck stop and they say, hey, Jeff Allen, hmm, name sounds familiar. Tell me about you. How do you respond to that? Oh, gosh, I'm just an old man trying to make a living. I'm what you consider the classic journeyman comedian. You know, I started in the comedy clubs in the 70s, and I really haven't strayed much from that. God has blessed me enough in the last few years uh, because of dry bar comedy uh, to get more exposure than I've had probably in my lifetime. And uh, people are coming out. And it's interesting. I just did a club in uh, Oklahoma. And I, I don't get upset much, but I get upset when we start late. So we're 20 minutes after starting time and we haven't started yet. And I run, I go to the, I forgot a lot of your audience has walkers and wheelchairs. <laughs> we're on the second floor and they have to take elevators up. And, you know, I said, all right, I'll give you that. Cause you're right. I have an older, I have an older skew. I love it when the young comics open for me because they look out and they go, holy cow, these are my grandparents. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, they're good people, salt of the earth, and they laugh hard. They laugh hard. They enjoy life. You are a working comedian. I think you live in Nashville, but I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up about 67 years, man. So, oh, uh, wow. June 5, 67 years ago, you were born. I think in Chicago, Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I expecting you don't remember much of that date, but you probably remember big swaths of your childhood. Talk a little bit about your mom and then your dad, and just 
about being brought up in Chicago. Oh, wow. That's interesting. When we were putting the book together, I really kind of neglected talking about them. I was going to talk about the marriage and what we went through, and but they wanted some historical context. And it's interesting. I got enough of my father and enough of my mother to be kind of a combo. My mom was a the calm in the storm. My father was an atheist and he railed against God his entire life. Every red light, every train, every traffic jam was God's attempt to get at him. But my mother would jab him. He'd get stopped at a red light and she'd go, oh, look, Jack, God made another light red. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I got, I think my mom's, a lot of my mom's nature, especially after my conversion to my faith, which made sense because when she was dying, we were in hospice and I asked her sisters, I said, is she okay? Is she right with the Lord and all that? She goes, your mother's never not been right with the Lord. I guess she was saved when she was a young girl at a Billy Graham crusade and never turned her back on it. But my father was so anti-Christian. Any mention of that in our home just sent him off into a tirade. His father was a pastor. His brother was a pastor. And I think in hindsight, something really bad happened to my father at church. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he had an unhealthy view of the faith. And he told me when I was 14, I had won an award for an all-star tournament baseball. I, I was MVP that weekend. And that was kind of a big thing for me at 14. So I'm sitting there looking at the trophy and he walked in the room and he took this opportunity to give me his view on the universe. And it was a godless view. And he told me there is no God. He said, there are people going to come to you later. If you, if you advance to the professional ranks that somehow this talent you have is from God and you tell them to kiss your backside, there is no God. And he went off and I bought it at 14. I decided there was no God. And my one passion in life was baseball. And by the time I was 19, I was completely out of it and um, uh, often running with drugs and alcohol. And uh, I don't think for a second that, that God made me an alcoholic or a drug addict. I think he just took his inspiration away. The, the, the literal definition of inspiration is God breathed. So if you think of it in terms yes. of God taking his breath and giving it to somebody else, which is what I do. I choose to go, well, okay, if you're going to throw it back in my face. And it wasn't until I came to my faith that I felt that breath and the, the inspiration and the joy that comes from performing. And so anyway, that that's kind of it in a nutshell. My dad was an angry, confused, but he was, he was a talented, talented artist. I have a painting of Louis Armstrong. He painted in my living room and Every time I hear Louis sing, man, I think of my father and I think of him sitting back in his chair with his eyes closed, just absorbing the jazz. Uh, he loved jazz and played jazz at the clubs on the south side of Chicago. At what age did you lose your dad? Uh, 2010. Okay. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll come back to that because then your father saw you leave baseball, but enter into comedy. At what age did you realize, man, not only am I kind of funny and cynical and get a couple of laughs in the classroom and in bars, but it actually can work on a stage? Well, I was awful for a couple of years. I mean, really bad. Stage fright. I'd walk up, look at the crowd, draw a blank and run off. And even to this day, I just auditioned for America's Got Talent two years ago. And I got nervous and my brain froze twice in the middle of a 90 second set that material I knew like the back of my hand. I just said to my wife when I got done, when I called her, because I eventually got through the audition and they, they said, yes, yes, yes. I got four yeses from the judges, but you're taping. So I called my wife and she was just so excited. She goes, we've been waiting so long for this. Never done a network television show. And then they cut two thirds of us for live shows and I didn't make it through the cut. I figured that because taping is one thing, live is another. Yes. Um, so my father, I was probably 10 years into comedy before I heard him say something complimentary. He was a huge comedy fan. We grew up listening to Cosby albums. And, and I remember him going to Vegas to see the comedians talking about Alan King and Shecky Green and 
in hindsight, in a layman's diagnosis, he probably suffered from bipolar. My brother did. He was diagnosed with bipolar. So he had have these dark times where he'd go into his room for weeks at a time and uh, just come out to feed himself and go back and sit in his room. And so when we would sit in the living room and listen to the comedy albums, and I'd hear my parents laugh. It's probably not a shock that this is what I really enjoy doing. And coming out of COVID really solidified um, there's a saying in the Hebrew faith, in the Jewish faith, called tikkun olam. And in their faith, they say, God knows the world is broken. And uh, your tikkun olam is, what are you doing to repair the world? He has charged humans to repair a broken world. So what's your tikkun olam? And when I saw that, I was doing an acting scene or something. That's where I first saw the term. And I, I went to a rabbi in Nashville. I said, I don't want to bastardize this for the Christian faith. I don't want to steal something that is not meant for us. But I love the concept of that. To charge an audience before I leave, what is your tikkun olam? What are you going to do to repair? If you don't think the world is broken, then you're not really paying a whole lot of attention to right. What did somebody say? The most empirically verifiable fact is the sin, sinful nature of man, but it's also the most universally denied fact. So when my father told me, I think it was 10 years into comedy, I finished a show in Arizona where he lived. And he says, my gosh, you're a comedian. That's and uh, I went home next to my wife. Yeah, I went back to my bed and crawled next to Tammy. I go, well, I got it. She goes, what's that? I said, approval from the old man. And Tammy says, well, you're finished. You're whole now. You're complete. I was long past waiting for that. But thinking about my dad as I was putting the book together, he was a hard man to get close to. Very hard man to get close to. And I remember asking my sister once, did you ever sit in dad's lap and watch TV when you were a little girl? And she started to think about it. She goes, not to mention it. No, it's so funny because I have three granddaughters and they pile all three of them pile up to watch TV. And it's one of the joys of my life is yeah. hugging those little, I mean, I, I, somebody said, what's the best thing about grandchildren? They're just happy to see you. I mean, I, I walk in a room and they see me for, and they run across the room full sprint. You can't, buy that, What's that will for? that that's just a gift and it'll go away at some point they won't be that thrilled to see me but for now i'm thrilled to death man the reason you have them is because you have children the reason you have them is because you have tammy so uh yeah. t- talk a little bit now not so much about mom and dad but and not so much even about comedy but about meeting tammy and what was it about her you fell in love with originally Oh, wow. I opened the book with it. I fell in love with her laugh. Uh, I was on stage. She was the waitress at a comedy club. And I heard this just beautiful. I said she was a smoker 37 years ago. So smokers have the best laughs. I mean, when you cannot get oxygen into your lungs, that's uh, actual music to to a comic. So that gagging, gasping, wheezing is a symphony of just wonderful sounds. So I heard a woman in the back. I go, she digs me. I'm going to go see her. You know what I mean? I walk back and she comes out of the back room wearing a short leather skirt and a white blouse. And she had eighties permed hair, you know, I mean, just stunning, stunning. My love life or relationship life prior to meeting her was that I'd meet a waitress at a club and spend a week maybe with her or something, but then lose, lose her. You know, I just would leave and, you know, not call or anything, just go on to the next town. And, I got back to LA, she's from Ohio, and I, I thought, this one's different. I wanna call her, I wanna keep in touch with her. And she had a two-year-old son, she was a single mom. And uh, I flew them out, that way I met her in November, flew her out in January to LA and took the kid, played dad for a week, took him to the beach and to the Disneyland and all that. And then April, I don't know, I decided I'd ask her to marry me. I always tell audiences, I go, look, if you're a young guy, I don't recommend impulsive, proposals if you're going to do something on impulse buy a pair of shoes so i at cleveland baggage claim 
I, uh, waiting for the luggage. I just said, you know, I love you. I love Aaron. You want to get married? And she said, pardon me. I go, you want to get married? You and I, uh, as if she didn't know who I was talking about. So uh, anyway, she says, uh, yeah, I guess if, if that's what you want, that's how excited she was. It, that's a direct <laughs> quote. She, you know, she goes, yeah, I guess, you know, it's no different. I said, Hey, you want to go to McDonald's for breakfast? Yeah, I guess if that's what you want. You know, <laughs> oh my God. We got the luggage and left. And I can tell you, you know, she had no idea the baggage she picked up that day. That was it. Well, <laughs> it was I, me. she may not have, she does now. And so do I, after reading your book and hearing your story, we're going to talk yeah. a little bit about that baggage. You came into this marriage, not only sort of accidentally asking that question and having her excited answer, but you came in addicted, man. You're addicted for the first 10 months or so to alcohol and cocaine Yeah, a year yeah just almost a year yeah talk just talk about that because it's not only it's not just like you're a party boy there's a brokenness that you uh are feeling with those drugs yeah it's this uh pascal described it as a god-shaped hole i didn't have a name for it but we we try to stuff this uh, this world into the hurt into that abyss inside of us I can go back. I started at 13 or 14, you know, and by the time I hit college, I was just off to the races. And I probably lived an entire decade at some form of inebriation. And I got into AA when I was 25. The first time I was living in my old town, a very small town on the South side of Chicago. And I was, I had become the town drunk. None of my peers would drink with me. I was drinking with the brothers of the guys I grew up with. They were all younger than me. They had just turned 21. So I was in a bar one night and they tied my shoes together after I passed out in the booth. So when I stood up, I fell down and I looked up and laying on the floor and I had all these kids laughing at me and I just took my shoe, one shoe off and I walked two miles home and just a flurry of tears. I was humiliated and ashamed and I just knew. So I called my dad. The next morning, I said, you got to come get me out of here. I can't do this. So I went to AA for the first time and I didn't stay. I was still doing cocaine, but I learned, they say you can go to AA and drink again, but you'll never drink the same. So I was an on and off again, drunk for the next five years. I, I would binge for three, four, five, 10 days and then dry out for six, seven, eight days. Cause I can convince myself that I could quit anytime I wanted. So anyway, when I got married, I binged on the road. I would go out on the road for five, six days and then come home for two or three days and dry out. So that was what my wife had for a husband was a dried out drunk. And then I got to Boston and I didn't have to travel. Um, I could make a living at home. Uh, they had the eighties. Boston was one of the hottest comedy scenes in the country next to maybe San Francisco. And, and then of course the coast, New York and LA, but uh, Boston was hot. I mean, I was doing five shows on a Friday or a Saturday night and you're picking up cash for each one. And I'm, I'm buying cocaine after every show, uh, every Friday and Saturday night, the, the guy would show up with a crown Royal bag, just filled with grams, half grams, whatever, you know, and just like, a people lining up at an ice cream truck we'd, we'd all line up and just buy our score for the day couldn't pay my bills and i learned i grew to resent her and the kids because prior to this i never had any guilt for doing what i was doing so now i got the guilt and everybody asked what's your bottom what's your bottom my father even asked me what was the catalyst so one night i come home and i'm doing rum and drinking rum and doing cocaine and two o'clock in the morning and my kids are sleeping. My wife is asleep and I'm trying to figure out we're all, I'm just getting angrier, just sitting there. And I realize it's her and it's the kids. I got to get rid of this. I can't do both. So I decide I'll beat her up. I'll drag her out of bed and no woman could stay with a guy that would do that, you know? So that was my plan. And then I'll just send money because that's the easy way to raise kids. You just send money. Anyway, I stood over her and then again, we all have a conscience, that little tiny still voice in us. C.S. Lewis wrote about it in Mere Christianity. Even the most devout atheist has a conscience. I mean, it's common grace that he extends us, but we, we have that. And I knew it was wrong. I knew it's so against my nature. And I'm standing there trying to wrestle with this. And my son started crying, mm. six months old. 
And I went in and tried to quiet him down. And uh, anyway, I ended up spanking him. And then Tammy woke up and came in and she screamed at me, what are you doing? My gosh, it's a baby. She took him away from me and went down the hall and sat on the end of the bed and fed our son. And when it hit me, what I had done, I mean, the shame, nothing in my drinking life humiliated me to that extent. Not the kids that tied my shoes together. I had four or five drunk tanks probably in my life, I, you know, all of that. And I just told her, if you don't take me to Alcoholics Anonymous, I won't go. And if I don't go, I don't think we're going to make it. And she took me to a meeting the next day and I walked in those rooms and I haven't left in 35 hmm. years. Jeff, I, I just had to ask that, that story so hard to hear. And I'm sure for our listeners to make any sense of it all. Right. But the, the drinking, the Coke, the life, the abuse that you're about to take out on your wife who doesn't deserve it. And then the right. abuse give to your baby six months old in the middle of the night who certainly did not deserve it. So their question, they probably have a lot is one of them might be, and why share this? Why not just oh, thank heavens for recovery and move on? Like wh why be so vulnerable with strangers? Well, for two reasons. One, we live in a culture today that if they found out, it looked like you're trying to hide it. We, we had the same discussion. Tammy was apprehensive about it because people would look at her and go, why would you stay with a man that would do that to your child? I, um, I just wanted everybody to know the man I was because the contrast to who I am today. Mm. And when I shared that at, at, at a meeting for the first time, I'm, I am, and no lie, it was a group of men, probably 15, 20 of us. Over half of them said, oh, my Lord, I did things yeah. to my children. Like one guy shared, he used to open the door on purpose and hit his kid. And there was some semblance of healing, getting the secret out. And like I said, I think we were talking off air, but I said, you know, Tammy read those first two chapters and she just put it down. She said, I can't read anymore. We were just awful people. And I said, yeah, but we're not those people, see? And so you have to kind of stick with the book to the end. If all I wrote about was the, the garbage that I did in my life as a, as a drunken fool, what's the point? And I waited till I was 67 years old to release the book. I'm writing about a period of my life when I was in my 30s. So I have a different perspective today. There's a, there's a distance between that man and who I am today. And um, I refer to that as that man, those yeah. people. We were those people. Well, that, tell me about that. That man and that wife of his were in a car on the way to the courthouse to get this thing over with. Yeah. You, you'd proven over the time of your marriage to be incapable of being in relationship. That, that is everything right. that, that, that experience had showed you both. What changed? I'm going to back up. I, I will share this in the book. The first chapter opens with the uh, baggage claim proposal because I wanted readers to immediately fall in love with the romantic side of me. You know, um, it worked. Can you beat baggage claim? <laughs> <laughs> there was a time we were watching some movie and Tammy was crying. The guy did it right. He got on one knee, had a ring, he asked the dad for the hand of the daughter. And I look at her, she's got tears in her eyes. And I said, I'm sorry, I'll ask you to marry me again. She goes, too late. My story's baggage claims. You know? Cleveland. So, yeah, Cleveland, Hopkins. So anyway, <laughs> the chapter ends with, we're living in Arizona now. We started in Boston. We moved to Jersey. They're called geographical cures. We did it every two years, thinking that our life would be better if we just moved. And then now we're in Arizona. And I find out she's in the middle of an affair. She made me take the word affair out of the book. She said, affair gives you the reader the belief that there was something romantic about this. And she said, the truth was, I just wanted someone to be nice to me. Mm. That's it. And he was nice. I didn't know he was a predator, but he was nice. And it's just one thing led to another. But I find out she's in the middle of this. And I call, I called American Express. I just had a feeling taking phone calls out of the kitchen into the bedroom. And just you get a feeling as the spouse, you know, something's not right. So anyway, I call American Express. She was visiting a friend. And I asked them, is my card being used right now? They said, yeah, it's at a hotel in Southern California or something. I said, can I have the name of the hotel? And uh, the number. So I call and I ask for her room. She picks up the phone and I just said, I got you. 
And there was this long silence. And I said, it's bad enough you're doing this and now I got to pay for it. And I said, get home. And her friend called me about three hours later, said she won't be home tonight. She's too devastated to fly. And um, I had one night alone with the God I didn't believe in. If she had come home that night, we wouldn't be married today. I would have said things that I couldn't have taken back. Mm. And the Bible in James, the book of James, he, he compares the tongue to a, a, a rudder on a ship. The ship is a large vessel, but you can't steer it without that small piece, the rudder. And the tongue on the human body is a small part of our body, but it, it steers the ship. You can bless and curse with the same tongue. And God had given me the ability to do both. And I was ready. I had things to say to her. And I wasn't going to say them over the phone. I wanted to cut her. I wanted to cut her bad. And uh, every time I'd start to get righteous, self-righteous about what she was doing, that little voice would remind me of something, you know. Remember the time in Jersey, you stood on a stool in a kitchen and screamed at her. I remember that she fell to her knees and just sobbed in the kitchen. I put my son to bed that night and he says, Daddy, you win. I go, what do you mean? Oh, he goes, you yell, mommy cries. You win. And two days later, I was in front of a therapist. Yeah, each one of these things were catalysts to move me to get better. I had a night alone with, with God and I, I came out of it just exhausted and realized what kind of husband I'd been. And I went from how could she to how could she not? Mm. And uh, I picked her up at the airport the next day in Phoenix and got her in the car. She's tear stained. We're exhausted. We're just exhausted. I mean, our life is just a mess. That's what I told her. You know, we're a mess. If, you will, if what you want's in California, you can have it. I won't stand in your way. But if you want us to work, we, you got to take 50% of the blame of this thing. And I'll take 50. If it gets 5149, the resentments will kill us. We'll start blaming each other, you know. So how about we just keep it? You're in mess, I'm a mess, and let's try to figure out. And then the question was, how did we get here? Hmm. And that's how the chapter ends. So hopefully I answered that question in the book. And then also who we are today. Again, those people don't exist in our home. When those people did exist for a while, they separated geographically. And during that time, yeah. you'd been collecting these envelopes and uh, at that phase in your life, ignoring all of them. What, what was in the envelopes and what was the first one you opened? I tell people we are his instrument. We are the instrument that God uses to heal. And uh, we're the instruments that the devil uses to destroy. I met a guy on the road, again, seeking. I'm seeking, man. I've read every book I can get my hands on from self-help to new age. To, and I never read a book my entire life till I got into recovery. Never. I was an uneducated ignoramus. And um, I used to say the only thing that exceeded my arrogance was my ignorance. I started reading voraciously. And I think I was reading Ayn Rand now. Um, I had gotten to the point where, okay, there's no God. But I got to figure out a belief system that will make me a better husband and a better father. I meet a guy on the road who is a businessman. And I have traded my obsession for alcohol and drugs to golf. I wrote about this in the book as an addiction. I mean, some people might read that and think, really, golf? I'm, yeah, well, you know, when it takes your mind and your heart away from your family and those that love you, yes, it's the problem. And, and Tammy grew to resent it like it was a mistress. And he told me, I said, I think golf is my mistress. He said, no, golf is your wife. That's where your time and energy is spent. So I'm out on the road. I hear about a guy that can get me on Augusta National, which is the Taj Mahal of golf courses, the Holy Grail. So I want him to be my new best friend. And it's interesting. God knows you. So I wasn't going to go to a church. If a guy came over and said, hi, I'm a Christian here. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I had to dismiss them. So I'm on a golf course with this guy that I respect. And he's talking about accumulating wealth. I think that was my question. How do you accumulate wealth? And he said, you don't want a lot of money. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you can't handle what little you have. I was in the middle of a bankruptcy and Divorce. I mean, I, the whole, when you learn to manage little, God will trust you with a lot. Enjoy the creation. You have the relationship, the one who created it. And again, I read a lot of new age. I said, this sounds new agey. Where'd you? He goes, it's in the Bible. I guess, you know, after a few holes talking about the Bible, I said, I don't want to hear about the Bible anymore. And he said, what's your problem? I go, it's a little archaic. 
I don't necessarily believe in God, let alone God's word. I might've been an agnostic at this point, 12 years in a, or eight years in a program. But uh, before we left that week, we had become good friends. He teaches the Bible and he doesn't condescend. He makes you reach intellectually to catch up with him. So I think you would enjoy him. Anyway, I said, if it won't cost me any money, you can send me whatever you want. So he sent me these Bible tapes. So about a year and a half, I collected them, never opened one up. And this beautiful man that God put in my path, loving husband, loving father, was just a perfect example of the kind of man I wanted to be. Tommy Nelson said, every man needs to get down wind from himself. So the aroma that comes off a man that is uh, strong and uh, gentle when he needs to be and uh, a loving husband and is just a sweet aroma to me. It's kind of nice to be around, you know. We'd end every conversation with, uh, he'd ask me, how you intend doing? And I'd say, not too good, Phil. We'll probably get that divorce. He goes, well, we pray for your marriage. And I go, why? And he said, well, we believe all marriages are ordained from God. We don't think that God put you two together to create a couple of babies and and for you not to be part of their life. So is it all right? We pray for you. I go, I don't care. You want to knock yourself out. Anyway, Tammy left to go to Ohio for the summer. And this was after we had decided to keep our marriage together. We filled out divorce papers and we're almost to the courthouse. Uh, 10 minutes. She said, pull over and said, uh, this is wrong. You know? And I said, you're out. She goes, what do you mean? I go, look, Tammy, I love you. I really do. I just don't know how to. I'm like my brother and my father. I'm damaged goods. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get right. But you've given me at that time seven, eight years. You deserve better than me. But I did tell her nobody will love those boys as much as I do. And that was what broke my heart. Sitting in hotel rooms on the road, thinking of another man raising my kids. Mm. And it would break me getting a phone call from my youngest daddy. He spanked me, daddy. He... Another man laying hands on my children. And I kept thinking, and again, I prayed in desperation. You know, if you're up there, if you exist, my God, help me. Why am I like this? Why am I the way I am? If people don't believe in demons. You've never experienced just self-loathing to the point where, where does this come from? My parents never sat me down and said, hate yourself. It was just this constant bombardment of anxiety. And then when I do something that felt good, it'd be, well, why does it matter? So anyway, we went home and anyway, I opened up the tape. The first tape I listened to was Ecclesiastes. And uh, meaningless, meaningless, all in life is meaningless. My heart leapt because there was a deep, profound truth to that, that I had come to on my own. I had seven or eight years of, of, of trying to figure out meaning apart from God. Mm. The bookstores are filled, tens of thousands of books of uh, man's attempt to find meaning apart from God. And the Bible has unchanged, not changed. You know, it's John Paul Sartre. I don't know if he said this. I heard this from some other speaker. But if Sartre said it, it is really and, and really profound. He said, in order for something finite to have meaning, it has to be attached to something infinite and fixed. So God is infinite and he's unchanging. He's fixed. So in order for us finite man to have meaning, it should be attached to that. Now, I don't know if you ever became a believer in God but he was just to realize that nothing of this earth will ever have lasting meaning. It's all, it just sways into the wind. That was kind of my journey through self-help. I would read things and go, okay, this is good. I'll attach it to my belief system. And then, you know, I become who I was. It's just um, a, a process of just elimination really. But when I heard meaningless, meaningless, all in life is meaningless. I said, that is so true. And if that's true, then this, there's other things in this book that's true. And that's what my friend Phil kept telling me. He goes, what's, what's in the Bible you don't think is true? I go, well, I never read the Bible. I mean, he goes, you're not really an atheist, you're a moron. You know? <laughs> he goes, a, true per a person seeking would at least study the Bible and read it and, uh, and then come to some conclusion that, that it was false. You just want to say it's false. It's the most read book, most purchased book. He said the entire Western civilization is built on the foundation of that book 
when the Brits colonized India and they finally got booted out, the only thing they left behind was the Bible. And if you research the areas of India where that book took hold and it, they're flourishing in all areas of life where the caste system, which I don't think anybody understands how brutal the caste system is, but you walk by someone, karma tells me that if I'm walking by you sleeping in your own urine, then karma said there's something you did in another life. This is your punishment. You're just paying your dues for your previous life. So I ha I can't do anything to help you. It would ruin your next life. I mean, how brutal is that? And and the Christian faith says no. Uh, if you're strong and you're in, and you to turn back and pick up the weak. I, I look at liken this journey with Christ as you're running a marathon race and you're exhausted. And all along the way, you're just picking people up off the ground and going, come on, man, we can finish. We can finish together. We can finish together. Come on. And each time you pick someone up, you run another quarter mile or whatever, and they see someone and go, come on, man, he helped me. I'm going to help you. Come on, we can go. So when you get to the finish line, you got thousands of people that were broken, exhausted, beat up, but you cross the finish line together. That's what I choose to believe about my faith. We have a lot to apologize for collectively as a faith, but as an individual, I'm trying not to be that. I want to finish strong with my so, wife, by the way. I'm glad with Tammy, by the way, that uh, you yes. turned around in that car that day and did not sign those papers that you've yeah, done too, rebuilding man. your life. This Ecclesiastics, it wasn't a Damascus moment, man. Your life didn't radically change, but it changed over time. And as you step deeper into your faith and as you let go of that rage, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and just succinctly answer. How did your marriage change? We're broken people, Tammy and I, and our prayer together when we pray together is teach us how to love, teach us how to be loved and make love. It's all kind of connected. They say when you get married, we were, she was neurotic, I was neurotic. And our neuroses fit. We had round, I, my round pegs fit into her round neurosis, neurotic holes. And then I got into recovery and my pegs started getting a little oval. I started making some changes that didn't fit. I didn't react the way I used to react. And so then there was this period of years where we just kind of didn't fit. And we basically crawled into apathy. I always tell people, if you're in an acrimonious marriage, wait till you get to apathy. So we experience each other better today. She can now tell me. She never was able to tell me, hey, I need you to pay attention to me. That was like the source of so many of our fights. I told my manager two years ago, three years ago when dry bar hit and everything exploded in my career. I said, she will determine how much I work. She's the priority. And that, believe me, that was never. And uh, we're going on a nine-day trip. We're going up to, I got to do a show in Spokane, and then we're going to go see the grandkids in Missoula. There will not be a golf club near me for nine days. It's all about her, all about her. And that, that's a big step. Now, I know there's a lot of husbands probably listening to this going, well, yeah, that's kind of what marriage is. <laughs> but if you knew me, you don't know, no, I'd be dragging the clubs and getting up at seven in the morning and going out and hitting balls for three or four hours and then coming back and grabbing her for lunch and then spend the rest of the day with her. But no, I'm looking at gardens in Spokane to visit. Share with me, Jeff, and, and our listeners, how it not only changed your marriage, but it changed your comedy. You've been doing this work for a long time before yeah. you found faith and, and stepped fully into recovery and healing. How, how did it shape the way you took a microphone and stood in front of an audience? Oh, wow. Uh, it's just the heart. It's, it's just a different human being delivering it. The material didn't change much, but how it was delivered. I wrote in a book about somebody told me you can look at who's laughing or coming up to you after the show relating to your material. And you look at them and think, is this somebody I would handpick to sit in my audience? And all my guys were you know, wearing wife beaters. <laughs> <laughs> cigarettes tucked into their sleeves and hard, hard men. You must be married to the same witch I'm married to. And I'd go back to my room and go, eh, I don't want to have a drink with these guys. Tammy would leave some nights if she came out to the show. She goes, she must just hate me. And I go, it's just comedy. It's just comedy. I was so angry. 
Christ changes your heart. And I'll share this. I got picked up to to do a convention with the leading gospel singer in the world, Bill Gaither. I didn't even know who he was. I had never heard of him. And uh, I had lunch with him, came home and told Tammy, I think I just had lunch with the Elton John at gospel music. <laughs> when I told him I had never heard of him, he goes, oh, oh that's great. This will be fun. This will be fun then. You've never heard of me. And he said, we do a little gathering in Indianapolis. That little gathering was 15,000 people. Never been in front of that many people in my life. So anyway, I go up the first night and he had told me, he said, a third of my audience will laugh at whatever you do. They're here to have a good time. He goes, another third may not understand everything you do, but they're here to have a good time and they'll laugh because the first third will laugh. And now there's a third of my audience, they're Christians that have been never given permission to laugh their entire life. They've been told this walk on earth is something you endure until you get to heaven, then the joy begins. If you can make them laugh, we'll have a long relationship. So I do my 10 minute set or whatever it is. And he comes up on stage and puts his arms around me, uh, his arm around me. And he says, whispers in my ear, he goes, you got him all the way to the back wall, man. Thank you. Thank you. And then the next day I'm going to do a breakout for about 500 people. And some guy comes over and he goes, uh, can we have a talk, man? He goes, we love you. We love what you did last night. And you've been around these discussions. You're waiting for the butt, <laughs> you know? the stroke slap. Here comes the slap. And he says, could you mention at some point you love your wife? Mm. And I go, they don't know that. And they go, well, you hit her kind of hard. And I thought, wow, based on the past, I mean, this is, she was sitting there. I mean, and it's just thrilled. She threw her arms around me after the show. And everything. So I said, okay, I can do that. So I do my set for the breakout and I'm leaving the stage and I remember, oh yeah, I got to go back and tell them I love my wife. So I go back and I start talking about it and I start sobbing. I mean, sobbing. God blessed me with this amazing woman and just what we've been through and the fact that she stuck with, I mean, I am sobbing. They're standing when I leave. There's the people, men wiping their eyes. Anyway, Tammy's waiting for me. I get off. She goes, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't know, babe. I've never done that before. When I would do church, they'd hire me for the testimony. They go, we like the comedy, but we want to hear about your walk to Christ, restoration and redemption. So anyway, I'd always share. And then different points of the sharing, I would tear up. The grace that was extended me by her and then by God to not crush me, it just was overwhelming at times. So anyway, I'd call Tammy. She'd go, how'd it go? I go, oh, it went great. She goes, did you go Jimmy Swagger tonight? Did you, did you stop? <laughs> you know? I love about her, man. She's just, there's no way to get a big head around her. It really isn't. You know, I come home and tell her, man, I got three standing ovations. She goes, great. The trash needs to be taken out. <laughs> so yeah. uh, tragically, our time together on set is coming to its end. We have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're called the okay. Living Inspired Seven, Jeff Allen. But before we get there, that rage and discontent and anxiety and anger that you felt. And although maybe not all of us in this room feel all of those all the time, every one of us in this room feels some of those some of the time. Yeah. For those of us dealing with that right now, what, what's the encouragement to our audience as they go through life feeling some despair? Well, I'd love to sit here and tell you that I never rage out again. I have moments. They're heartbeats in the context of my life. And usually I'm hungry, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I'm, I'm exhausted. And then Tammy still, we still have the ability to push each other's buttons. And maybe she's lonely, but she doesn't know how to express it. So there's this push. I became a connoisseur of my own anger. I started really paying attention to things. And, and it was never one thing. I have techniques now. We, we laugh about it as husband and wife. She'll say, go to your happy place. <laughs> I just envisioned sitting on the balcony at a golf course overlooking the first fairway and going, life's not that bad. It's not worth this. And one of the other techniques I used was to write down what angered me today. What, why am I angry? What is angering me? And then, then revisit it in, in two days and try to figure out if it, you realize that what you're angry about isn't really what you're angry about. Politics in the 90s, what I learned from therapy was we tend to want to match the external with our internal. So if you're going through a lot of turmoil inside or you're angry inside, 
you're going to look for something outside of you to justify that. Because it's not normal for us. God didn't read us to be this way. So politics was a wonderful, sad, park yourself in front of the news for a day. And you can find a hundred things to be self-righteous and angry about on either side of the aisle. It doesn't matter. And I think it's designed that way to just kind of keep us apart. So really pay attention to what triggers your anger and then try to figure out why. Why were you angry that day? Because it really, you know, other days those things have happened and you didn't get angry. She said this. That's why I got angry. Well, she said that a hundred times over the last three weeks. You didn't get angry. So why did you overreact, you know, this time? And, mm. and I also believe in demonic realms. I really do. I, um, I believe that there's something inside of me that I, I still have that voice. I just don't give it the, the weight that I used to. You know, you're a loser. You're a piece of crap. Um, and, and it's funny, it comes out on, you know, I, I'll hit a wedge shot, you know, 40 yards offline and you're, you're a loser. And I go, what is your source of information? How does that uh, square up? I hit a bad wedge shot and I'm a loser, you know, <laughs> I mean, but it's just there. So I've learned to just kind of live with it, you know, and I'll thank the devil. Thank you, devil. I'm just glad to know you're still inside me somewhere and uh, you're never going to go away. So. Well, man, uh, the reminder of this conversation won't fade either. I'm grateful for your time. And we do have seven questions that okay. get all of us together. So Jeff, question number one is what's the most impactful or most inspirational book you've ever read? I know it took you a while to read one, but now you've read many. What's been the best? Well, the Bible changed my heart. So the Bible is, uh, but if you're looking for a book, Road Less Traveled was the first book that I read that just ignited in me. And what I got out of that were two things. Life is difficult. The other thing I remember from that is true love cannot begin until conflict enters a relationship. There's no such thing as a loving, conflict-free relationship. When you can accept that, to realize that person yelling at you across the room still loves you. It's normal. It's a part of life. What's, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a kid growing up in Chicagoland that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I was a, I was a good kid. I really was obnoxious, but a good kid. I was not a fighter. Let's just say that. I didn't get in a lot of fist fights. I was a peacemaker. And yeah, I'd like to be a peacemaker more today. If your home caught fire and Tammy and your kids and your grandbabies are all out safe and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, one physical thing, what would you come racing back outside with? Tammy's knitting or Tammy's crochet. All of her, all of her work. Yeah. She sits in a chair and crochets every night and has crocheted these beautiful things that we're going to leave to our grandbabies. And when they'll look at that long after we're gone, they'll go, that's my Mimi. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Chicago, Nashville, Arkansas, wherever you're going to next day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased. Who would you like to be seated next to? Ravi Zacharias. Wow. First, first time uh, I've heard Ravi's name on here. Tell me why. Well, Robbie, Some of our listeners may not know Ravi. Why'd you choose Ravi? Well, his life ended. And then some things came out about his life that destroyed his legacy. And he had such an impact on my life. Um, his book, Can Man Live Without God? Ravi was an extremely, extremely bright man, but he talked to the lay people. He never condescended. He seemed to be such a gentle soul. And the fact that he was the fallen human being just reiterates how important Christ is to me. But for the grace of God, you know. The way I look at Ravi is what a tortured soul he must have been. Yeah, can you imagine? To have that addiction and not be able to get free from it. What's the best advice from someone in your family or anybody else you've ever read ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Read. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Read. I tell you, yeah, parents come to me. My son wants to be a comedian. I said, tell him to read. 
everything he can get his grubby little fingers on, from People Magazine to Sartre to Ayn Rand to read it all. Just fill your head with uh, with knowledge, and then you have references to talk about to find humor in the mundane. <laughs> There's only seven or eight things you could talk about, and not lose an audience. You know, <laughs> so you better find unique ways to express yourself. Jeff Allen, it has been said that all people can have their lives summed up with one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Not finished yet. My friends, the author of Are We There Yet is not finished yet, and it's a reminder that neither are we. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for your time, your comedy, your conversion, your healing, and your words of wisdom. John, thank you, man. This was such a pleasure. I am so sorry that I had to sit in my car. I could have rented a hotel room and you had a better backdrop for the chat, but I hope we keep in touch. I really, I, I get a sense about you that I really like. Well, man, thank you for uh, not dying before you got to a story that's worthy of being shared. Well done. Well, thank you, man. Well, I told you on the front side that this conversation will be a reminder that no matter how dark and how difficult life may seem, there is always hope that the best of our days remains ahead of us. So if you are struggling with addiction, confronting financial turmoil, repairing broken relationships, or a multitude of other challenges that we are faced with from time to time, I hope that Jeff's story reminded you that through grace, and faith and redemption that there is hope not only in tomorrow, but the truth that the best is yet to come. If you're looking for a place to continue the conversation, to dive a little bit deeper into the gift of your story, your life, and to connect with an awesome community, why not join our free members-only online community? You can learn more. You can visit with us. You can join me there right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash together. And my friends, if you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, I think you'll also love the conversation that we shared a couple of years back with our dear buddy Patricia Heaton. As one of TV's most recognizable and beloved female leads in the hit comedy, you all remember it, Everybody Loves Raymond. Patricia reminds us that no matter what stage of life we're in or on, crisis can serve as a golden opportunity for reinvention. You can listen to Patricia's interview at Live Inspired Podcast episode 282, or you can cruise on over with me right now to the show notes, and uh, we'll have a link to it right there at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, you know I love you. You know there's nothing you can do about it. You know that I'm grateful that you are part of our podcast family and that I am committed along with our team to making sure that you recognize the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best of your journey remains ahead. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.